Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. And now would you welcome uh, now Dr. Denise Snowden. Many of you know she was on a leave of absence for a while. She has been such a gift to us here at Quest, and uh, she's going to speak to you this morning. Lord, thank you for Denise. Thank you for the way she's uh, impacted so many of our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd bless her now as uh, she speaks to us and as your spirit works through her. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm excited and terrified at the same time. I, uh, I'm used to speaking to large groups of people, hundreds, sometimes thousands. I have no problem usually uh, because I'm speaking about something that I do for a living, which is in this field of education. And instead today, I'm going to be one of those people, I think, on that stream where I'm going to jump in. Um, I'm going to teach you what I'm learning, but I don't like just instinctively know about. Um, so I ask you to bear with me as we delve into this text Um, We're in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 is where we're going to start. We're going to refer to it several times back and forth, um, but I want to read the whole thing through to set the big picture, and then we're going to piecemeal our way through it. I'm hoping today that um, you laugh with me a little, and you cry with me a little, um, and that you have a couple of takeaways. So let's start, Mark 7, chapter, or verse 24. There you go. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let our children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, be opened. At this the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. There's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 31. I'll refer to that a couple different occasions. When Ross first asked me to tackle this, and I read it, I was like, really? Like, isn't there something like... I really can't identify with this woman. My child is not possessed by a demon and the deaf mute. And You know, it's just one of those passages in Scripture you kind of read through and you're like, yeah, Jesus, he, uh, you know, he did miracles. Of course he did. You know, and you just kind of keep reading. Yep, there's another miracle of Christ and there's another one and you just kind of keep going. 
And when I was faced with the reality that I really needed to study this and really spend time, I realized how many more times I need to read the Bible because I haven't read it enough to really, there's so much in it. Um, I spent all week studying, you know, a very small section of text, and I feel like I still don't quite understand it internally, you know, still wrestling with it. Um, It's been a couple years since I've been up here um, doing a sermon, and the last one was about the importance of reading the Bible. And here I am just admitting to you that I think I just need to read it over and over and over. This one time is just not enough. Um, As we study the book of Mark, we're constantly asking the question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? How can we relate to someone like this? How can we connect? Each week we learn a little bit more about him. And I think what this study really is, is trying to take this box that we've created that defines who Jesus is and try to open it and remove that box. What are the walls that we've built around in our own definition of who Christ is? Um, We limit who God is and what he can do for us because of our, um, our limited understanding and our limited brain power. I remember vividly one afternoon, and I'm sure this has probably happened to you as well. Uh, I was leading the Truth Project study several times I had done it, and it was probably the third time I had done it. And I was sitting there um, just kind of contemplating, um, you know, what was going to happen that week at, at when I was facilitating. And on TV, I had the TV running in the background, there was one of those commercials which was for, you know, raising money and trying to get us to donate for a relief fund in Africa. And they showed the pictures of all the children with the bloated stomachs and the flies. And I remember sitting there thinking about preparing for this class and then all of the things I have to do. Like, I just don't have time to prepare for this class. Like, at the time I was writing my dissertation and I had all these other things that I had to worry about. And just wondering oh my gosh, how could I ask God to help me? Like, look at these kids. Like, I just felt like they're so much more important than what I had on my heart, what was burdening me at that moment. And then it hit me. Because through this study that I was engaged in, a metaphor that was used was this box and how we try to define Christ, how we try to define God through this box and that we need to open that box. What I was doing right there in my mental process was limiting what God could do for me by saying, oh, he's too busy. My worries are not a priority to him. Only these children who are starving in Africa, he's got enough to worry about. He doesn't have to worry about me. Have you ever thought like that? I'm not worthy enough. God doesn't care enough about me. How wrong that is, how wrong it is to try to define him that way. And so we really need to take that box, open it up, and free ourselves from the limiting definitions we have of him. Our learning target today is that we're going to learn how we should approach Jesus and why we can do it that way. I'll say it one more time. Nate? Thanks. My son's running the the production booth, so that's fine. Today we're going to learn how we should approach Jesus and why we can do it that way. So as I prepared for this, I was feeling really led by the Holy Spirit. Melissa would be very happy about that. Um, Just an overwhelming feeling that this message is going to touch someone in here in a profound way. Probably like put the mirror up and it'll probably he's talking about me. (laughs) Um, 
But I have to say, every time I'm feeling really um, called by the Spirit, and I know I'm going to do something really special for God, boy, Satan knows about it. And he is out on the attack. So I want to tell you what happens the week before Vacation Bible School. So as you know, I'm also the director of the children's ministry here. And last year, before Vacation Bible School, you know, I had a flood in the basement a couple days before. You know, just a little distraction. Uh, this year, it was even compounded. So I know that Vacation Bible School was going to be something really special for God's kingdom. So not only did we lose power this year for an extended period of time, causing setbacks in all the preparations here at church to get ready for VBS, but my former mother-in-law passed away that week, uh, five days before Vacation Bible School. She was buried two days before Vacation Bible School. Um, On the 4th of July, Greg and I came home from the fireworks. We had a great evening with the Ottomans and a whole bunch of other people, went to New Albany fireworks. It looked like there was a storm out, but it didn't really touch us. Um, we got home, and the storm had touched my house. An 80-foot-tall tree, an oak tree, about three feet diameter, you know, just a little tree, decided about 25 feet off the ground, got cut off, fell down, and this great storage barn that my husband built six weeks prior so that we can keep all of our lawn equipment in there was crushed. Next to the storage barn was his pickup truck, which we didn't drive to the fireworks, which also had huge limbs, probably about a foot around, land in it. So his his car's been, or his truck has been in the body shop for a couple of weeks now. Um, So every time one of those things happened, I could have gotten discouraged, right? Or I could have just said, that's Satan trying to take me away from my mission for Christ. And that is how I got through that. Leading into today... This past week, we lost power again this week. I think it wasn't as big or widespread. You're laughing, Greg, right? So I'm at home alone. The power goes out. Within 30 seconds, our backup generator onto this, we have like this full house generator thing, um, didn't kick on. I call my stepfather. (laughs) The wind is coming in. The power went out before the rain came in. And I'm like, if the error message is EO4, what am I supposed to do? He's telling me what buttons to push. I got it going. It ran for 10 minutes, went out again, had some mechanical failure. Greg pulls in. I'm frantic. I'm like, our basement's going to flood. I just can't deal with it. We have a backup to the backup generator because I don't trust mechanical, my mechanical knowledge. So he gets the backup generator. Well, after he tries to get the generator run and it doesn't work, he gets the backup out. That fails. We finally get it going again, and just in time as the water is coming up the sump pump, you know, it kicks on and pushes all the water out. Then to top it all off, so that, that was, you know, averted, I think that was Wednesday, Friday, I'm putting my final touches on my sermon, and I hear this scratching noise. I have a wonderful study, I think if I idolize anything, it's books, so just books all around, and I have a fireplace, and my office, my, my work area is set back in the corner. And I'm like, why is there scratching noise? And then my dogs all of a sudden focused on the fireplace. <laughs> I've got two German Shepherd mixes. They're wonderful, but they're usually not bothered by anything. They're sniffing around and looking around, not quite sure what's going on. And you know, I call Greg. I'm like, when you get home, can you shut the fireplace? Um, so he comes in and we hear the scratching noise. 
And so he comes on the phone with Tom, who um, goes to church here. He's a critter ritter. <laughs> and Greg and Tom get on the roof and look down, and there's a nest of raccoons in our wood-burning fireplace that's on top of the damper that's been closed. And those little babies making noise. I was wondering what the funny smell was. I keep lighting the candle in my office. Yeah, it's raccoon urine. It's great. It's okay, left. But don't worry, I didn't let it deter me from finishing my preparations for this sermon because we are all shaped and molded through our trials. So let's try to demystify this text. Um, I'm going to start with the very first half of the first verse. Uh, Verse 24, Jesus left the place, that place, and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Stop. Okay, I'm confused already. Where's Tyre? Anyone know? I mean, if it's in the Bible, isn't it important? Right? Okay, so I found a map. Let me show you. (laughs) That dot at the very top, right underneath Mediterranean Sea, right there, that's Tyre. Okay, Jerusalem is down here by where the Dead Sea is in this area. Um, Nate, go right up to the left a little bit right there. Up, 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 right there. That's Jerusalem. Okay, so great distance. He went like out of Israel. He went north. That's a lot of walking. You know, that's what they were doing. He went out there to get some rest, to like get away from it all, to find some downtime. And so in my own mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's nice. I can look at the map of Israel, but then I want to put it in like, I like the macro perspective. Let's look at the big picture. Lebanon, you see where that is? That little, there's, you can actually see the purple. Well, underneath the purple, there's actually a little yellow. That's where Israel is. And you can see right now, current day, around Israel, we've got Lebanon, which had unrest um, this past year. We have Syria, and if you watch the news at all, um, we should be praying for these people um, in Israel or in Syria because it's just right around Israel. Egypt, uh, my, sister's, my sister's an African economist. Egypt is part of northern Africa. One of her very close friends was one of the people on the um, NGO who was retained in Egypt earlier this year for several months. Um, and it's just a really scary situation that that's what surrounds Israel. And the Abrahamic covenant really tells us that if you bless Israel, you will be blessed. And if you curse Israel, you will be cursed. So we need to pray and continue to keep them in our prayers. But going back to the scripture that we're reading about, current day Lebanon is where this is. So Tyre is currently in Lebanon, which is north of Israel. So now I feel better. I got my first question answered. All right. Um... The second part of that verse says, He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he, came, he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So here he is. He wants to keep silent. We know that The word of God can't be kept silent, just like the man of God, the son of God, cannot be kept hidden. What a joke that Jesus wanted to be kept hidden, because we know that's not possible. Uh, So he probably expected, you know, this woman to show up. But think about who she is. She's a Syrophoenician. It says she's a Greek. Well, Alexander the Great had conquered that area, like, in 332 B.C., so the Greek language is what she spoke 
Um, of course, now it's part of Lebanon, um, but the Roman Empire, about 30 years before Christ was born, conquered that territory. So it's kind of a mixed-up area of the world, but Greek is the primary language. So she's not Jewish. Okay, She doesn't speak uh, the same language that Christ does. She does not have the same culture that he does. She is not um, part of his religion. Uh, here's, and she's a woman. I mean, back then, if you're a woman and you had something to say, you could not approach a rabbi, and Jesus was seen as a rabbi. Now, because her country was so close to where um, Israel was, she understood the cultural and the um, moral code of that country. So she knew it was against everything that she should be doing, but she did it anyways. As a woman who is Greek, Syrian, Phoenician, she approached a rabbi, barged in on him, laid herself on the floor in front of him, and begged. And if you go to the Matthew translation, it's an incessant begging. It's an over and over and over. And the disciples, they, if you read the Matthew translation, tried to get Jesus to shoo her away. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. What are you doing listening to her beg? Stop her. Stop her, Master. Stop her. And, of course, Jesus, he just sat in silence and let her beg. Have you ever felt like that, that you just begged Christ for help, for something in your life that was so important to you, and you felt like it fell on silent ears? But sometimes through that process, through that persistence, is where we grow and we learn. And we are sometimes rewarded for being persistent, for being bold, for being assertive. And that's what happened with her. She goes boldly to Jesus, even though she knew she had none of the moral, social, religious, cultural credentials. I'm coming before you boldly, even though I can tell you all my labels. I'm a woman. I'm a sinner. Um, I've been divorced. Um, I've been betrayed. I can just go on and on and tell you all the reasons why I am not worthy to come before you to share Christ's word. I'm not a theologian. Just like this woman who didn't meet any of the criteria to go before the Lord, but she did anyways. Her posture, she fell at his feet, was paying homage to him and demonstrating profound respect, but also abject pleading. It shouldn't be too surprising that she begged. Think about this. What was she that we haven't recognized? She has a little girl, right? Who is sick, possessed by a demon. She's a parent. When you're a parent, isn't that the most important job description you have? Yes. Okay. Wouldn't you do anything for your children? Um, Katie Stewart, she's a, a member here. She told me a story during vacation Bible school. She's a mom, has an only child. The only child's about to enter kindergarten. And if you've had to put your child in kindergarten, she's a stay-at-home mom. You understand what it feels like to your heart, right? You feel like your heart's going to break when you put them on that bus. And when do you, your heart's going to break when you send Derek off to school, right? The same thing happens when you send him away to college. She's sharing with me this trepidation that she feels. And her mother gave her some advice and told her, you know, 
Try to put it in perspective. The love a parent has for a child, it flows downward and it just gushes. It's amazing the capacity of love that we have for our children. But when you think of the love that flows up from child to parent, it's not gushing as much. They love you. They just love you differently. They can't love you as much as you love your child. Those of you who have just had children, they're new in your family, can you, did you not realize the power of when you have a child, how much love you could possibly bear? It's the same thing here. Here's a mother. She overcomes all of these racial, social barriers because it was for her daughter. Mary, I remember November 14th, it was a Monday, we had a staff meeting, and Mary calls me. Denise, are you at the office? I have some papers I have to send in. Maya's diagnosis, we just got it back, and it doesn't look good, and I need to get her into another program, and I don't know how to get this paperwork to these people. Can you help me? Shows up at the office, you know, a team of us, we work, and we get, you know, what she needed scanned and faxed and emailed and all that. She put aside her pride. You put aside everything that you hold dear when your child is at stake. And that's this mother. So it's not too surprising that she did what she did. I'm going to tell you a personal story. So this is where I take a jump into the river. Um, Most of you know what I've become or you know who I've been the last seven or eight years since I've been here at Quest. You don't know where I came from unless you've been in my small group and had to deal with me. (laughs) But um, I'm going to share a story about where I've been. Um, I moved out of the house when I was 18, entering my sophomore year of college. My grandfather was having his knees replaced, and I moved into his house on the west side of Cleveland to help take care of him, and I transferred from a community college to Cleveland State University. And during that time, first couple months I was there, I found out that I was pregnant. I had just turned 19, and my boyfriend was at Bowling Green State University. And yes, I was pregnant before I was married. I could add that to my label of why I'm unworthy. But I'm not going to do that. I remember the hardest thing I ever had to do in that moment in my life was to tell my mother... So I don't know if you remember this mom. My mom's over there. I routinely would go to lunch with my mom. I would pick her up from work. We would just go out to Denny's or whatever. And I thought, oh, I'll just tell her over lunch. You know, public place can't be too emotional of an outbreak, right? You know, so um, I picked her up. We went. And then unbeknownst to me, there wasn't just two of us at lunch. Uh, One of her best friends, Mary Lou, was joining us. And the whole time, Mary Lou has two sons, and um, we grew up in the same neighborhood I did with her sons, and my parents would go on vacation. We would spend the week there, and we got to eat Pop-Tarts and sugar cereal. It was great. That's why we love Mary Lou. And the whole time, her kids were struggling with things. And of course, you know, my sister's great. I'm great. She's on and on about, Terry, you should be so proud of your girls. They're so awesome. Like, oh, she's in college. She's taking care of grandpa. Just like on and on how great we are. And the accolades just poured out. And then I knew the whole time, like I had the sinking feeling, like I'm in trouble. Like I'm a bad person. Before that, like I had never had detention. I graduated top of my class. Like I was a good kid. And then I have this, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to tell her now? Thanks a lot for making this harder, right? 
I drove back um, to my mom's work. We were in the parking lot. I know the exact spot we were sitting in. And I told her that I was pregnant. Of course, I laid out the plan for how, you know, we're going to get married in two weeks. And, you know, we have, like, <laughs> I always had the whole plan out. So, you know, I, I thought the whole thing through. And I just cried. And what my mom did was amazing. She just put her arms around me. And she let me cry. And she didn't tell me she was disappointed in me. She didn't make me feel bad. She just poured out unconditional love. It's the same thing this mother is doing for her daughter in front of Jesus at his feet. Now, of course, you all know what a blessing came out of that, right? You know Nate. He's back there. And actually, 22 years ago today, on July 29, 1990, Nate was born. Happy birthday, Nate! Um, I'm 41 and I have a 22-year-old. Pretty cool. I've been an empty nester for three years. I'm not recommending you do it young, but I'm saying it's pretty nice. (sighs) The love a parent has for a child is immeasurable. And that's the example we have here. But... Her second response to Christ, not her initial begging and throwing at the feet, isn't the memorable part. It's really the second response, which is really history-changing. I want to reread that part. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 27 to 30. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So this is Christ. He's saying that. I did the red letters. So isn't that weird? I'm like, why is he telling her about children and dogs and dogs is an insult at that time not like my furry friends at home this is like dogs were just scavengers um why is he responding to her in that way and then she replies lord even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs then he told her for such a reply you may go the demon has left your daughter We live in a canine loving society, so at first glance when you'd read this, why don't you just kind of skip through it? I don't quite get that. Don't really have time to study like the context of it. I'm just going to say, okay, Jesus healed the the daughter. That's great. Let's move on. But when you look at it, Jesus' people are his children. This is a parable. And even though I was an English teacher, parables we didn't teach much. Um, We did a lot with metaphors and similes and analogies, but really parables seem to be kind of like a Christian Jesus thing. So in public school, you really didn't talk a lot about it. Parables parables are short analogies or metaphors that happen to have um, an instructional component, something we're supposed to learn from. This is a really short parable, verse 27. First, let the children eat. Jesus' people are his children. The children of Israel. Let the children eat. Let the children of Israel eat all they want. For it is not right to take Israel's bread and toss it to the dogs. And in this case, he meant the Gentiles. And she accepted that. That's what's so profound about it. She didn't argue, she knew exactly what he meant. I'm a Gentile, I'm outside of your, of your mission, of your call. I am not a Jew. I am a woman. I am a Gentile. I'm outside here. But you know what? I'm not going to argue with about it because this is about my kid. Lord, she replies, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
So even though the children of Israel get fed first, the Gentiles, we also get some too. So what she does, which is so profound in her boldness, is she accepts her place, but she also knows he has abundant, overflowing love for everyone. There's enough crumbs for all of us. And that I am worthy enough because you are good enough and you have enough love for me to offer it to me. It was a challenge and it was an offer and she gets it. This type of assertiveness, the boldness that she had, it was, is very unique to us. In Western cultures, we don't know how to be assertive, except for when it comes from our rights or for standing up for something good that we've done, something that we've earned. She accepts her unworthiness. She's not coming to Jesus because she's good, but because he's good. Give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. When it's all said and done, Jesus turns to her and says, that was a great answer, a wonderful answer, an incredible answer. Different translations have different terms. He was really impressed by her. And for that answer, abundant blessings will go, will come to her. The demon has left your daughter. Here's a summary of her story. This passage teaches us the importance of how how we respond to Jesus. The pagan woman understands Jesus' mission. Disclosed to her and the parable of the children and the dogs at the table, she fully accepts that Jesus must fulfill God's revelation to Israel, but that the superabundance of God's love will spill over and include her and others like her, us. The irony here is that Jesus has been seeking desperately to teach his own disciples, Jewish male disciples, And yet they've been dull and uncomprehending. They wanted to take her out of the house and not let her approach him. They wanted to cut her off. She's not good enough. What are you doing here? They still didn't get it. That there is enough love from God for all of us. Martin Luther was really amazed by this story and moved by it because he saw the gospel in it. Here's a woman who understood the gospel. You're more wicked than you've ever dared believe, but you are more loved than you ever dared hoped. On one hand, she's too proud to accept what the gospel says about her unworthiness. You cannot stand before God on your moral record, on your dignity, on your rights, on your basis of your suffering. None of us can. We can't prove our worthiness. God owes us nothing. But on the other hand, she does not insult God by being too discouraged to take up the offer that he has of love and forgiveness. There are two ways that we fail to let Jesus be our Savior. So I want you to really think about this. Do you have a superiority complex? Are you too proud to come to him? That's me. I think I can handle it myself. I withdraw. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I'm not going to be dependent on anyone or anything. And that includes God. And I've had to work really hard to change that mindset. I'm self-reliant. I'm not trusting of God and and self-centered and self-absorbed. And I want to say I was. I'm working on that every single day to be more God-reliant, to not have a superiority complex that I can handle it myself. I think you don't have to be one or the other. The inferiority complex is just as strong. I'm too awful that God couldn't love me. I'm too awful that I couldn't stand up here and share this with you. 
right? I'm not worthy enough. I doubt God's love or that he doesn't have enough time or that I'm not a priority for him. That I is also self-centered and self-absorbed. You see that I'm both self-centered and self-absorbed. If we're too prideful or we're too despondent, it doesn't matter. We're saying that we doubt what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us because we can handle it or he can't handle it either way. We need to place ourselves in the middle and really find balance. And I think she does a good job, this Syrophoenician woman does, of modeling that for us. John Newton, he was a pastor, and that probably rings a bell for some of you. He wrote Amazing Grace, and I think there was a movie out about him a couple years ago. He also wrote a series of letters, and if you go to Google, you can find these online. They're really thought-provoking. One particular letter uh, was a pastoral counseling letter to a man who was very depressed. And here's what he wrote to him. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself. But you may be, indeed, you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then not only express a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low of an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience, they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. It is just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to seek, to assert, to come after his mercy, to accept it, to rest in it, to be content with it, as it is to say, I'm too good for it. There was a prayer by Thomas Kramer, one of the great prayers of the English language. Millions have prayed it. It's a prayer of approach to the Lord's Supper based on this story. Here's how it goes. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Every time anyone reads this prayer, Thomas Kramer has invited them to step into the Syrophoenician woman's shoes because she got it. She got the gospel. She went home and found that her life had been put back together because she boldly asserted herself at the feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How is it possible, really, to be that bold, though? I mean, I think all of us can understand the unworthiness part, but really the feistiness part, the humble contentiousness. I want to share with you the second part. This will answer some of those unanswered questions. Verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, which is that Lebanon northern part, and went through Sidon, down the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his finger into the man's ear. Really? Okay. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Everyone got the visual going? He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephetha, be opened. At this, the man's ears were open, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. There's a series of actions that Jesus takes. And what he does is really very interesting. 
It's not like a secret code where like I'm about to heal, so I have this mumbo jumbo kind of thing I have to do where I touch things and you know, groan or whatever. Here's what he does. He takes him away from the crowd. He points to his ear. He takes his spit, puts it on the man's tongue. He looks to heaven. He sighs, and another translation says he groans, and he says, be opened. Very ritualistic, isn't it? So what's that all about? He doesn't really need to do any of that stuff, does he? I mean, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He can heal anybody or anything. Why does he do that? Well, he's doing it because the man needs it. Think about it. What kind of man is this? He's a deaf mute, right? I can't hear and I can't speak. Jesus approaches him where he needs to be met. He takes him away from the crowd. He takes him away because this man has been made a spectacle his whole life. People have made fun of him, have teased him, have ignored him, have just set him aside. The last thing this man needs is to be made a spectacle again. He takes him out. He removes him from the crowd. That's the first thing he does. Then he points to his ears takes his own spit, and puts it on his tongue. That is meeting this man in a cognitive place, a communicative place. That was sign language. He was showing him what he was going to do. He touched him, and he spit, and he touched him. It was very much nonverbal gestures to communicate with him and meet him where he was. Then he looks to heaven, and this is the really interesting part, the sigh. He sighs or groans and says, be open. When Mark writes this, and we know this is from Peter's recollection um, because he was there, but Mark writes, and he chose language that was really important to this. When he describes the deaf mute, he uses a Greek word, and the Greek word is megalilin. And megalilin is only used one other time in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, Isaiah 35, chapter 5. And it was a prophetic term. It was used to describe a prophecy regarding the deaf mute. And here again, why why wouldn't he just use regular terminology to describe the deaf mute? He uses this prophetic term, Mark does, to convey the message that as Jesus is sighing and groaning, there's this prophecy of what's to come and what he has to pay in order to heal this deaf mute. He heals him because he knows that he's the sacrifice, the prophetic sacrifice, that he's going to die for us. He's going to die for this man, which gives him the power to heal him. That's what that groan is, looking up to his father. He had to bear divine retribution for us. He identified with this man so much, identified with him personally, his own sacrifice, That is why we have to be bold and we have to assert ourselves and come before him because Christ did that for us. There's a cycle here. A child had to become a dog so that we dogs could be sons and daughters at the table. A child, a children of Israel... Jesus had to become a dog so that we dogs, Gentiles, 
could be found a place at the table next to Christ because of what he did for us. If we ever think that we're not worthy enough, we're insulting Jesus Christ. If we think we're too good enough, then we're too proud, then we're insulting Jesus Christ. We need rightless assertiveness. It's assertiveness not based on your goodness, but on his goodness. It's not coming after the things you deserve because of your goodness. It's coming after the things you don't deserve because of his goodness. It's got three points to ponder. First one, Jesus always gives you what you need, and he only knows what that is. We may think we know what it is, but as soon as we start to think we know what it is that we need, we're being proud, and we're not coming to him and trusting in his will for us. Second point, Jesus is a wonderful example for reaching across barriers. He reached across to this woman who was nothing in common with him. We're drawn to people who are similar to us. I think we need to accept the challenge to be drawn to people who are not like us, just like Christ modeled for us. Nothing should interfere with our identity and who we are that separates us from other people. We should really look at our commonalities, and that is that Christ died for all of us, whether there are people in our lives that know Christ or not. He died for them, too. And lastly, try to be gentle with others. He was so gentle with the deaf mute. He did everything differently with him because it's what he needed. If he's gentle with you, it's because what you need. If he's not gentle with you, like he wasn't with the Syrophoenician woman, then that's not what you need. You need maybe to be shaken up a little bit. And sometimes we have to just accept it. It's not going to be an easy road. Christ is going to come to us the way we need him to come to us, but the way that he knows that we need it, not the way that we know it. Try to be gentle with others the way he was with the deaf mute. And then when you're not treated with gentleness the way the Syrophoenician woman wasn't, don't offend. She didn't offend. She didn't argue. She embraced the challenge, and she took it on. Last thing. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. And don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. See yourself as Christ sees you. And I only can tell you that because since last September I've been on this quest. This quest. I didn't do that on purpose. That was really cool. This quest (laughs) um, to really get to know Christ. And the first word that he told me was that I was beloved. And I did not know that. I didn't want to accept it. Like you can kind of know it, but to really believe it, that every single one of us in here are beloved by him. So we can approach him with boldness. And there's this song that's really, um, I've really turned to a lot. I love it. It just came out last year. Um, It's by Jason Gray, and it's called Remind Me Who I Am. And the theme is really about when I forget who I am in you, Lord, Remind me who I am. Remind me that I am beloved by you. Don't let the definitions that I place on myself or that the world places on me, those labels, be who I am. Let me be who I am through your eyes. So I want to close out today with this video, um, which shows us um, how to embrace and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how unworthy you feel you are, 
or how much you think the world has put labels on you. Remember to strip them away and to see yourself the way Christ sees you, the way God sees you. You're beloved. And if you'd like to have prayer, we offer you to come down. We'd love to pray with you. Um, If you're having a hard time struggling and accepting this unconditional love, because you've never had that before, we'll definitely help you work through that. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.